There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. This week, we embark on a series about forgiveness and reconciliation. We're a nation that's supposed to be coming back together right now, and there are obvious questions about that. How do you even begin? And what is forgiveness? And then there's harder questions. What if you can't forgive? And what about those times when forgiveness hasn't been earned or asked for? And what about when reconciliation isn't the right path? What if someone has done something unforgivable? I feel like these are questions we're all thinking about to one degree or another, but mostly in the context of politics. And we'll talk about that on this season. But we're going to try to answer those questions about forgiveness in a post-Trump America by looking at forgiveness from a lot of different angles and as many different contexts as possible. Interpersonal forgiveness, like when an adult child tries to come to terms with a negligent parent. And, of course, racial reconciliation and reparations. Reparations for the Tulsa massacre and the land back movement for indigenous people. And I want to push the metaphor here to ask about climate change. Have we damaged the planet too much to make that relationship whole again? Now, putting the season together, we noticed that criminal justice reform had to be a part of the conversation because we can't just talk about criminal justice reform in a vacuum or in the context of the wrongly accused. What about the people who have done something wrong, who have committed terrible crimes? What do we get out of forgiving them if we can? So that's where we're starting. This week's guest is Maurice Shama. He's a staff writer for The Marshall Project, and his book is Let the Lord Sort Them Out, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. It's a book that encompasses a broad sweep of Texas history, busting some myths that many Texans, including myself, have held on to for far too long. And it has some close-up profiles of people on death row, but also prosecutors and advocates, jailers and executioners. I'm going to drop a fairly significant spoiler here. No one participates in the death penalty process without it inflicting trauma of some kind. So this is a story about historical forces and violence and the effect that both of those things have on individual humans. And it's coming right up. Maurice, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What made you want to use Texas as the lens to look at the death penalty? 
Well, I've been reporting on the death penalty for quite a while, and I started doing it in Texas, which is where I you know, was born and raised and, and started my journalism career. And so I knew that we were this uh, epicenter of the death penalty in a uh, you know, a literal sense that there had been, you know, 1500 and some odd executions in the country and, you know, roughly a third of them here. And, but I knew that there was also a kind of cultural story that one could tell alongside that, that Texans had this almost knee jerk connection to the death penalty, the sense that it was a part of our heritage. And it was something I had always heard, always sort of came through when I would do a long interview with someone and it would drift into that, you know, space of why Texas, why are we the epicenter of, of this punishment? Um, and so doing a whole book about it kind of allowed me to really dig in a little deeper into the state's actual history and to see how some of these myths about Texas developed and, and came to, you know, associate the state so strongly with this punishment. Untangle that a little for me, because, again, as a native Texan myself, I, I got the year of Texas history in which I was taught the, about the war between the states and the war of northern aggression and <laughs> the Alamo. And there's, I mean, literal myth-making in schools here. It's true. I always tell people that I grew up in Austin, which is like the theoretically the liberal city. And I went to college thinking of the Civil War as primarily about states' rights. And I didn't really know what that meant or unpack it. You know, the heroes of Texas history, Stephen F. Austin, William Travis, the Alamo, were very much uh, a part of, of growing up. And what I came to learn later was the way that Texas is actually more of a Southern state than it is a Western state. We sort of have this idea when we're growing up here that um, we were the frontier. We were the place people came and would scrawl GTT for gone to Texas, you know, on their doors back in Tennessee or wherever, and they would come out to the frontier. And we had a very harsh and punitive criminal justice system, not because we were necessarily, you know, worse people, but because it was a kind of regrettable necessity out there on the frontier that, that the judge is off on his circuit hundreds of miles away. And so we can't afford to wait around for a trial. We don't have a jail. We just got to string this guy up from the nearest tree. This is something you see in a lot of movies. I grew up watching those movies. Um, what I came to realize was how much that's a sort of smokescreen for the fact that Texas, much like Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi had the same kinds of um, illegal mob lynchings that we we associate with the kind of deep South and the Jim Crow era. Um, but because Texas had this other mythology, we were able to to sort of shift our eyes away from it and and uh, and and have a relationship to this very harsh criminal justice system, this very harsh punishment uh, that that in our minds was not about race and was not about Jim Crow in the aftermath of the Civil War. I think that's one of the most um, resonant things in the part about Texas in the book for me uh, is that we are so much more Southern than most Texans want to believe, especially Austinites, probably. Um, and that you scratch that Western veneer and it is, you know, like a, a Western storefront, like it, it, you, it falls right down and there's the South right behind it. And that the legacy of racism and slavery in Texas is much deeper than I guess I even sort of allowed myself to realize, and maybe here's, you can talk a little bit about, if it doesn't jump too much, the relationship between the death penalty and slavery. Um, but Texas, like many Southern states, had this Jim Crow era in which the white uh, majority really tried to assert its power over the newly freed, um, you know, emancipated people. 
many emancipated people fled north as part of the Great Migration to escape this system of oppression. But one way in which that oppression was sort of dramatically and uh, um, viscerally uh, manifested was in lynchings. So there was this fear among white Texans that all these newly freed uh, people were going to rise up and take over the government. And there was this real panic. There was a lot of um, kind of sexualized language, this fear that black men were going to rape our white women. This was even something that Stephen F. Austin, you know, the namesake of my liberal hometown, uh, openly worried about. This was fascinating to me. I had not learned this in, in middle or high school, right? And uh, so fast forward into the early part of the 20th century and you have these, you know, big spectacular lynchings where hundreds of people would crowd into these town squares where it was almost like a day's outing and entertainment to watch a black man get burned alive. And, and the, the descriptions are really quite gruesome, you know, people taking home splinters of wood and, and even fingers as souvenirs from these lynchings. Um, at a certain point, the, um, legal executions, the sort of legal criminal justice system that emerges uh, has a very kind of fraught and tied up connection to these lynchings. So I tell a story in the book about a man who is uh, given a four hour trial and can hear, you know, saws and ladders outside the courtroom in the courthouse square because he's going to be executed. It's a foregone conclusion from his little, you know, farce of a trial. And that gives a illustration of just how close the legal death penalty system back then could be to these illegal mob lynchings. It was almost as if they wanted to give the semblance of a legal system so that they couldn't be accused of doing it illegally. Fast forward and the death penalty goes behind closed doors in the prisons. It becomes the electric chair and the lethal injection. We sort of hide it. And race also gets very sublimated. Um, you know, there's racially coded language in the trials, but it's, you know, plenty of, of white people are also getting sentenced to death. And so it's very easy for Texans to say this has nothing to do with race and our connections back to slavery. But at the same time, the, the prisons where, you know, death row is housed, um, are very much uh, sometimes on the exact same land as these old plantations, right? Sometimes the, the plantation became a prison farm and the connections between, uh, you know, slavery and Jim Crow and the contemporary criminal justice system, they get very um, hidden and sublimated and it takes sort of work for journalists or historians or just interested people to kind of unpack those connections. I think especially because of that idea of um, Western justice, of frontier justice, it really is a convenient way of telling a story about these same activities, right? Like you've got to string them up because there's no one around, you know, the, the judge is on a different circuit. Um, but really, like the people getting strung up, the cattle rustlers or whatever, those were black and brown people. One thing that you talk about that I think is also kind of hidden from a lot of people is the number of Mexican-Americans or, or Mexicans, I guess, depending on what period of Texas history you're talking about, who were lynched. That's right. There were many of them. Uh, there's a historian named, I think, Monica um, Martinez Munoz, I'll get the, the exact name, who has a, a book called The Injustice Never Leaves You that I found really fascinating on the score. You know, you had an era in which Texans were colonizing, essentially, what had been Mexico. They were setting up, you know, farms, taking over land. And in order to colonize that land, they had to uh, essentially take this land from, um, from Mexico and also from Native Americans who were occupying it. And so 
as this push and pull of colonization and armed resistance to that colonization plays out, uh, you start to see a lot of lynchings and a lot of um, not even lynchings, but um, just sort of military incursions essentially into innocent, you know, native and, and Mexican communities and a lot of just violence and death back then. And that too has been pretty sublimated from, you know, Texas history curriculums that we grew up with. So why is it important to understand that really gruesome history of the death penalty if it's waning? That's a great question and, a, and an interesting way of framing a question that I, that I guess I've thought a lot about uh, in, in you know, conceiving of the book. So the, the story starts in the 1960s when the death penalty, much as it is today, was waning. And at the time, you had civil rights lawyers in, you know, in 1972 going to the Supreme Court and saying, the death penalty is a racist system. It disproportionately affects minorities in this country, and we need to do away with it for that reason. The Supreme Court... Uh, agrees with them that the system has problems and that it's sort of arbitrary who's getting the death penalty and who's not, but they're not willing to go so far as to say this is about race. Over the course of the next 40 or 50 years, the death penalty has a heyday in which race is a part of the picture, but it's very complex. It's very hard to unpack. You have prosecutors um, talking about defendants in very racially coded ways as monsters. Occasionally in Texas, you have explicit, um, you know, kind of canary in the coal mine cases where an expert witness explicitly predicts that someone's going to be dangerous in the future uh, and, and thus they need to be executed because they're a minority, that there's this, you know, statistical connection between being black or brown and and being dangerous, which is, of course, horrifying. Uh, but those are just the cases where it's explicit and on the record, right? And at every turn, the Supreme Court sort of has an opportunity to look race in the face. And the public also has these individual opportunities to, to look at the racial dynamics and the punishment. And we, we just keep turning away. One of the ways we turn away is through the nostalgia for the Old West and the frontier mythology. One of the ways we look away is legally, you know, striking down death sentences uh, that that might have a racial component to them, but not looking at the much larger, uh, you know, body of death sentences where the bias is implicit as opposed to explicit. And so just at every turn, we're doing it. And I think part of why I wanted to tell the story of us embracing the death penalty and then turning away from it is to encourage us to try to keep a kind of deeper historical sense of the role that race plays in these cases and sort of to not be fooled again in a way that, that if there's another turn towards punitive justice in America, sort of that there's, we have a little more material to kind of look back on how it's possible to, to create racist results without explicitly thinking that we're doing something racist. That's something I thought about while I was reading it, that, the reason why this story is so important right now has to do with the fact that we are turning away from the death penalty, but a lot of those arguments, especially those coming from Republicans and conservatives, actually don't include race when they make the argument. Um, they talk about budget. They talk about the the time that is wasted in the courts. Um, and it, so it seems like there's this weird, like there are tons of people arguing against the death penalty on the basis of racial discrimination and, the, and, the, and its systemic <laughs> effect on people of color. But that the tipping point seems to have been, been, as you illustrate in the book, that like lots of tiny little counties just couldn't do death penalty cases anymore, you know. And, and I guess, do you do you have a concern about that, that the conversation is different than it might be to be long lasting? I quote in the book, George Will, you know, conservative columnist saying, 
After all, capital punishment is a government system. So skepticism is in order for conservatives, right? And I think it's been a real tension, not just in the death penalty context, but also when you know you talk about like the First Step Act in Congress and some of these other criminal justice reform bills that the left is really about sort of bringing up the racial injustice and the, the right is very, um, at least reading between the lines, seems kind of queasy about bringing up race and talking about race explicitly. And uh, I think over the next five, 10 years, we're going to watch that tension play out where the left is going to reach a kind of point where they kind of can't get any uh, further politically without uh, explicitly showing that this is a, a reckoning with historical and you know racial injustices and the Civil War and slavery in Jim Crow. And the right is going to have to just decide, like, are we going to um, you know keep not talking about it or start talking about it? In this regard, I was really fascinated watching the movie Just Mercy. Um, you know, many uh, listeners probably know that there was this book and, and it became a film with Michael B. Jordan playing Brian Stevenson, who is a real life um, defense lawyer in Alabama, who, uh, you know, is probably the leading public figure describing the connection between the criminal justice system and the death penalty and the history of racial injustice. And I found it interesting because the book and the film focus on a case of a man who's innocent, who's going to be executed, right? Instead of someone who's guilty with a question of whether they deserve it, whether, you know, whether they're being sentenced to death because they're black. But in, but in this case, it's a, it's a black, innocent man. And at first, my reaction uh, to that focus was, well, that feels sort of beside the point in the sense that, you know, um, sure, there are innocent people on death row, but there's many more people who are not innocent. And the harder debate for death penalty support and abolition is, is about those people, right, who really did commit the crime. But what's so, I think, brilliant about that story is that part of what allows the main character to be, um, you know, falsely convicted and sentenced to death is the way in which nobody believes him over and over again because he's black, right? That the cops don't believe him, um, you know, his... The prosecutors uh, don't believe him and and everybody sort of closes off their mental doors to mercy and open mindedness because of a certain implicit racism. And I think sort of that's an example uh, in my mind of how figures like Brian Stevenson are trying to kind of bring the innocence question and the race question together creatively to try to pull people to talk about race, even if it's uncomfortable. I'm really glad you brought up the innocence uh, angle, um, <laughs> the innocence play, which is in some ways like I, I think people probably don't realize like that's a decision that death penalty opponents make a few different times in the book. You have different strategies for opposing the death penalty. Um, one is some people who are innocent might get killed. Right. And that's the sort of I, probably the most recent memory people have of any if any kind of death penalty debate is about you don't want to kill an innocent person. But you're right. The deeper conversation and the harder conversation is, should anyone get the death penalty? Should the most terrible person on earth get it? Right? Yeah, there is a shift where they realize, you know, if we uh, convince the public that uh, innocent people uh, are potentially sentenced to death, well, first, some people might say, well, that's just too bad and every public policy has its flaws and what are you going to do? And there are people in the book who say that. Um, but there's another reaction people have, which is, okay, so if we can manage to free all the innocent people from death row and ensure somehow that no one innocent is executed, you still have a death penalty and you still, um, you, you know, you could, you could, you could see supporters of the punishment, uh, 
drafting a system. Uh, I mean, the argument is that it's always going to be a human system and you'll always make mistakes, but you know, it doesn't lead you to abolish the death penalty if you're just chipping away at the various problems that allow innocent people to end up on death row. So you've seen a shift, I think, among opponents of the death penalty, especially among defense lawyers in terms of their sort of public relations strategy. Um, I don't mean to make it sound totally considered. I think in some cases, these are these are just sort of cultural shifts that happen. It's not just about decisions. But in a lot of these cases, it's and I think this was especially true during the Trump administration's um, run of executions earlier this year. This is a great example. The debate was not these people are innocent. It's they're guilty of murder, in many cases, horrific murders. But let's talk about the trauma that they experienced as children. What defense lawyers have managed to get in front of the public is the fact that their clients, even when they've committed a heinous crime, are suffering from you know mental illnesses, intellectual disabilities, incredible, unimaginable poverty as, um, as young people, you know, Lisa Montgomery was a famous case. She was executed under the Trump administration and, um, her defense lawyers managed to get the public talking about how, uh, she'd been, you know, raped repeatedly as a child and, you know, these unimaginable horrors. I feel like there's sort of three different tactics that you've laid out here. Maybe there's more, but, um, there's some people innocent may die right? There's this person is a killer, but look at these mitigating circumstances, horrible upbringing, mental illness, uh, drug use, whatever. And then there's maybe we shouldn't fucking kill people. Sorry, that's my, (laughs) that's sort of where I fall (laughs) on these lines. But is that 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 argument just doesn't work? That that argument just doesn't work for people, I guess. There's very few examples in my mind of that argument working to convince prosecutors or jurors or like the public at large um, uh, that the death penalty should go away. And and what defense lawyers really end up doing is chipping away at it case by case and convincing prosecutors and jurors not to forego the death penalty forever, but to not kill this guy, this woman, this one person. And they managed to figure out how to convince the the decision makers on the other side to be merciful. And they just do it in case after case. And then eventually you have no more cases and the death penalty goes away. And it's like we've collectively decided we're not okay with killing people, but we didn't have to make that decision in the abstract. We had to make it painfully case by case over and over again, which is much slower, sloggier work. It's slower, sloggier, and it has less grip because, you know, one of the the things in the book that I think will be new to, to our audience is this idea that there was a period in the 60s where it looked like people might not want to do the death penalty more. Like it was declining in popularity. You had presidential candidates and attorney generals, attorneys general, um, being uh, not death penalty supporters. You had a, a cautiousness about it. And then unfortunately, the Supreme Court went and declared it unconstitutional. And apparently like this was a, this kind of created a backlash. The idea of taking the death penalty away, you know, made people think maybe, oh, wait a second. That's basically what happened. I mean, it's like Americans didn't realize they wanted the death penalty until they were deprived of it. Part of that backlash is also a backlash to the civil rights movement. I think there's a, 
you know, a lot of civil rights decisions in Congress and at the Supreme Court, uh, Voting Rights Act, uh, but also, you know, Miranda rights, these different rights for people, you know, accused of crimes that um, we now think of as really important civil rights guarantees for, for you know, these people. But at the time, were greeted as uh, the Supreme Court's, you know, taking away our ability to catch criminals. And of course, there's a coded um, sense that a lot of those criminals are black and brown people. But of course, that's never said. And uh, the the death penalty decision the death, was this really kind of quirky moment where, unlike all these other decisions, the public could do something about it. They could say, okay, Supreme Court, you don't want us, you don't like our previous death penalty laws? Well, we're going to write new death penalty laws. And they do it. And uh, that is how we get the system uh, that we have today. Um, so there's that's yet another way in which race plays into the picture in a very quiet way that takes a lot of kind of mental labor to, to tease out. Let's break in here to hear from our sponsors. With Friends Like These, it's brought to you by Magic Spoon. Cereal is supposed to be for kids, or it's supposed to taste like cardboard. And when I was a kid, it also tasted like cardboard. I wasn't allowed to have sugary cereals, the ones that were advertised on Saturday morning cartoons. Cheerios was my mom's idea of a special treat. So I grew up thinking of sweet, sugary cereals as kind of a dangerous indulgence or a dessert. Magic Spoon means I get to think of cereal, sugary cereal, as breakfast and as a treat. Magic Spoon cereals have zero grams of sugar, 13 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. They have only 140 calories a serving, and it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. And some exciting news. Magic Spoon will be releasing two amazing new flavors this month for a limited time only cookies and cream and maple waffle. And those both sound pretty indulgent to me. Or you can build your own box, also indulgent. Available flavors to build your very own custom bundle are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. If you're listening in Canada, Magic Spoon now ships there as well. Now, I usually advise mixing the cereals from the variety pack. I personally like to mix peanut butter and cocoa. I have to say, I'm really curious about what maple waffle might be like with either of those or both. <laughs> Go to magicspoon.com WFLT to grab the new limited editions, cookies and cream and maple waffle or build that custom bundle of cereal to try today. And be sure to use our promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. The offer is good now anywhere in the US or Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll re Refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT at checkout to get $5 off. With Friends Like These, it's brought to you by Parade. Now, Parade makes underwear, but it is about self-expression. They make creative basics from extra small to 3XL. Kemi Tella's launched Parade just over a year ago. All Parade underwear starts at $8. They have 14 different styles, including a super comfortable thong, a brief, and a boy short, and over 20 brilliant colors to choose from. Sustainability, inclusivity, and ethical manufacturing and social justice are at the heart of the brand. Currently, almost 100% of their fabrics are produced using certified non-toxic recycled content, and they recently launched their newest fabric, Universal, the world's first carbon-neutral edgeless underwear. 
underwear. In addition, Parade's packaging is 100% biodegradable and breaks down within 300 days inside a composting environment. But what really matters is how it looks and feels, right? Well, I love the colors. They are happy colors. They are confident colors. They're not about being sexy for someone else. They're about enjoying who you are right now. And they are comfortable. Between universal, replay, and silky mesh fabrics, there are 14 different styles, including high-rise, low-rise, and mid-rise. They won't ride up if you've been sitting down all day, and they won't give you pity lines if you happen to leave the house. They've already committed to donating 1% of all profits to Planned Parenthood of Greater New York and count feeding America. America and the Loveland Foundation as just a few of the organizations they proudly donated to over the past year. For a limited time, with friends like these listeners can get 25% off four pairs with the code WFLT. Go to www.yourparade.com WFLT to get the pairs you want and celebrate who you are today. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Super Coffee. I used to kind of laugh at people who are worried about sugar and caffeine and how they might wind you up or give you anxiety. But apparently that is true when you're a kid and it's true when you're definitely not a kid. I now have to pay attention to both, and that's why I am really liking Super Coffee. Super Coffee is made to power your entire day with its unique combination of caffeine, healthy fats, and protein that provide a sustained, jitter-free energy with no crash. Did you know that a Starbucks Frappuccino has 52 grams of sugar and 370 calories. I have nothing against sugar or calories, but do you want them all in one drink? (laughs) Super Coffee has zero grams of sugar, 10 grams of protein, and only 80 calories per bottle. It is also keto-friendly, lactose-free, and gluten-free. Now, Super Coffee's bestseller is their bottled coffee, but they also have tasty canned espressos, coffee creamers, and ground coffee. I actually use the ground coffee. It's got a subtle flavor and a subtle effect. And you can have it with their no sugar sweet cream creamer, which gives you all the fats that kind of smooth out the caffeine buzz. Super Coffee was also recently named the fastest growing food and beverage brand in America by Inc. Magazine. Super Coffee has a 60-day money-back guarantee, meaning if you don't love it, you get your money back, no questions asked. And we have an exclusive deal for with friends like these podcast listeners. Get 25% off your entire first purchase. I recommend one of their variety packs or bundles. You can see what you like. It's a great way to try all their delicious flavors. To claim this deal, go to drinksupercoffee.com slash friends or use code friends at the checkout. That's drinksupercoffee.com slash friends or use code friends at the checkout. Super Coffee is also available nationwide in over 25,000 stores like Target, Whole Foods, Walmart, Kroger, and CVS. But you're going to want to buy it online. Drinksupercoffee.com slash friends. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. I want to talk a little bit more about America, maybe in general, and the death penalty, because um, something American progressives are usually pretty aware of is the fact that we are almost alone as a country at in the way that we pursue the death penalty, um, among other, you know, uh, high-income industrialized nations. Do you have theories about why here? America tends to get lumped in with Iran, China, Saudi Arabia, um, as the other countries that have the death penalty. Interestingly, Japan comes up as one, as a fellow democratic country that maintains a death penalty system. And actually what Japan and America have in common is that there's some sense of collective ownership over it, right? Unlike in Iran or China or Saudi Arabia, where it's seen as this sort of, uh, authoritarian government program that, you know, is often used on political dissidents. In America, there's this sense that we all chose it together. And so we have this sense of ownership that not only do we vote in the governors and presidents that order executions, but we vote in the local district attorneys who uh, who pursue death sentences. And America, unlike I think a lot of European countries, has a very localized criminal justice system. We, as you know, counties vote in our top prosecutors and our sheriffs. And there's this sense that we kind of trust them. And when they decide that someone deserves the death penalty, you know, the citizens on the jury that they're trying to convince may also have voted for that district attorney. And so there's this sense that we're all collectively, democratically deciding this together as small local populations, which then suggests that it's sort of something cultural and about us. But I also think that, uh, in the democratic sense, you know, it's sort of uncomfortable to talk about, but, but I think in a lot of European countries, there was plenty of support for the death penalty and the, um, you know, political leaders in those countries just said, you know, we're going to abolish the death penalty and we're going to insulate ourselves from the public backlash of it. And, uh, there are people who have accused those countries of just being a little less democratic for that, right. That it's not that everybody in Norway or Germany doesn't have a sense of retribution when they hear about a horrible murder. It's just that their politicians have taken the death penalty off the table and sort of culture flows from that. It's not an option. So, so people get used to not wanting it. It's an interesting analysis. I have a few thoughts. One is that um, in the authoritarian countries that that have the death penalty, I think it's funny to say, well, it's recognized as the, the tool of monarchs, the tool of an authoritarian to uh, eliminate political dissidents. Well, that's, it's used that way here, too. Um, just we don't have that consciousness about it. Um, there's one that's one way of looking at how the death penalty is used here. Right. Um, uh, and the other thing is that. um Something that comes up again and again in your book is this idea that if we don't execute people, if the state doesn't execute people, then people will just go out willy-nilly and like frontier justice, whatever. That doesn't happen in other countries. So this idea that like, well, the people in Norway um, aren't as anti-death penalty as you'd think. They just, the government has taken it off the table. Well, there's been no con- common, you know, rise in revenge murders 
in Norway. That's right. There's not. And, and, and that undermines that argument here, which is I, a less frequent argument today than it was at one time. I mean, it shocked me when I read in a 1976 Supreme Court decision, you know, a justice saying, if we don't have the death penalty, um, you're going to have you know, there, something, I mean, it's more high flown language. It's something like there are sown the seeds of, of vigilante justice and, and lynch and lynchings. And uh, there's this idea that was for a very long time, a part of our collective consciousness here, that the death penalty was uh, a way of protecting sort of society from the violence that would come from people taking um, justice into their own hands. And I think that that's more of a cultural idea than a reality. It's something we still get in like, you know, movies like Death Wish or, or, or Kill Bill or something. There's a, the revenge fantasy is very much a part of our culture. But I also think what happened is that that argument disappeared in the same moments in the 80s and 90s when we came to start seeing the death penalty, not just as a democratic choice we were all making, but also as a service to victims. There was this idea that, sure, technically it's the state of Texas versus so-and-so, but prosecutors even admitted to me that they felt like they were doing it for the victims. And you have a victim's rights movement that's promoting harsh punishments. Um, you know, you have family members of victims showing up outside the execution chamber in Huntsville and even witnessing the executions. Uh, and there's this very much a sense among prosecutors, uh, jurors, executioners, governors, that this is bestowing a sort of um, gift to the family members of a murder victim uh, in the form of justice, uh, maybe so they don't do it themselves, but also that this is what we owe them as a collective. And, and that, you know, I don't, I haven't spent the time in Germany or Norway to, to know what the sort of analogous uh, version of that is, but it's hard to imagine that their justice system is quite so oriented towards the victim's um, propose, like purported needs in that way. I'm not saying that this is actually what victims even necessarily want, but it's sort of what we think they want. Yeah, and it's a, it's an odd um, kind of concern for people's feelings um, that doesn't get expressed for other people um, who might be impacted by the criminal justice system. You know, like the feelings of of, of the family of the victim versus, you know, the, the feelings of the family of the person who's the suspect, that they, they don't matter at all, obviously, right? Even though those people are innocent. they all, all their crime is is to be the related to the person that might be executed. Right, the mother of the man who committed murder, right? And, and she loses her loved one. And you see a rhetoric around uh, that emerges in the 90s. The word closure comes to the fore. I think some scholars have even analyzed how it, it starts popping up in media accounts of, of the death penalty where it hadn't been there before. And this idea is closure is the thing that we give victim family members. At the same time, you also have victim family members saying, we don't want the death penalty. We don't support it. We don't think this is what our loved one who died would have wanted. Um, and those victims find themselves kind of shut out of the system. You know, the prosecutors don't call them back and the um, victims advocates don't, you know, tell them when the court dates are and they feel really um, ignored and like their legitimate trauma and grief are, are just sort of cast aside. Um, and that starts to, you know, give the impression that the idea that we're doing this for the emotional well-being of the victim is a... Um, convenient narrative for uh, 
essentially politicians who are trying to kind of uh, score points politically. And that's the most callous version of it. I think that there's the, the reality can be sort of somewhere in between. It's not all one thing, but uh, definitely I heard plenty of stories that made me feel really kind of gross in terms of, you know, politicians using these victims until it's not convenient anymore. Um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about specific people, if possible. You have a mini amazing characters in this book. And I guess one of the ways I want to talk about the characters is a little bit to go back to this idea that America has decided to collectively own the death penalty, which I'm not sure is true. Um, Because although, yes, I think sort of people, yes, we're a country that executes people and we vote people in to do that. Um, There is this strange way in which the, the emotional weight, the moral weight, of it really just falls on very few people, right? Um, both the tie-down team, as you call it, or as I guess it's called in prisons, the people who attend to the arms and legs and head of the prisoner who's about to be executed, um, the people that work on the appeals, of course, and the stress and strain that they go through and the connections that they make, the families of the victim, sure, the families of the accused. You say we take collective ownership over it, but it's like a, some people have a lot bigger percentage ownership than others. And it's dramatic impact on all those lives, even like, like I said, on all sides of it. I mean, part of the purpose of this book is to try to increase the amount of collective ownership that we take over this big policy decision that we've made. Because in reality, it, it ends up falling upon the people who are, who are around the punishment. So one goal of the book was to kind of introduce readers to all these different people and the different ways it hits them. Um, you know, the, the book opens with a, a man named Carol Pickett, who is the chaplain uh, for the Texas prison system and finds out in the early 80s that part of his job now is to spend the day with the condemned man before the execution. And he feels really kind of um, ambivalent and and traumatized by this this aspect of his work. And on the one hand feels, well, maybe I can justify that I'm bringing comfort to this person, even if I don't feel crazy about the death penalty. But on the other hand, by bringing comfort to this person, I am ensuring that he's not going to fight back when they go to strap him down to the gurney. And so I'm really culpable in a way that's really, you know, feels very awful. But at every turn in the system, someone can offload responsibility to somebody else. Uh, it's like in collectively owning it, also nobody owns it. So uh the prosecutor says, well, I chose to seek the death penalty against this person, but really it was the jurors who decided. And the jurors say, well, we decided to sentence this person to death, but we were just answering some questions that were posed to us. We weren't like choosing to push the button to kill this person. Then, you know, at every level of appeals, the judges are saying, well, I'm just rubber stamping this death sentence that came to me. I'm not the one. And um, executioners are saying, we are doing the hard job that our society is saying needs to be done and nobody else is really willing to do it. So we have to get traumatized by it. And that's just what we're going to take on as our duty as corrections officers. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I interviewed a man named Kenneth Dean, who was a longtime member of the tie down team. And he really just kind of came off as a decent person. And he, uh, said to me that he, you know, wanted these executions to be done in a dignified way. And he, you know, emotionally struggled with doing them. He struggled with how to describe what he was doing to his kids. I found all of this very terrible, 
And he, you know, at least on the books is a supporter of the death penalty and, and helps carry it out. But he also is, is super troubled by it. And so at every turn, we're sort of asking someone else to, to pick up the ball and they're just going to throw the ball to someone else. And so we, we all take ownership, but then none of us do it. We offload responsibility. And I introduce all these different characters in the book to show these sort of difficult moral moments that they're going through as they are kind of handed the ball and then decide, like, am I going to take ownership or am I going to just toss it off to the next guy? And to me, it's almost as though you discovered an argument against the death penalty that I had not had top of mind, which is that we shouldn't make people suffer this trauma that aren't guilty of anything, you know, that the prosecutors and the and the attorneys and the judges and the the prison guards and the tie down team. Those are the people we offload to and they all can offload a little bit to other people as well. But you tell stories about all those different characters where they've had immense emotional struggle and psychic pain because of these things that they've been asked to do, that they may support in name, but because they're the ones who are in that system, have to do the things that other people who say they support the death penalty don't have to do. Um, you know, I told the story of Elsa Alcala, who is a uh, prosecutor who sent, sent several men to death row in the 1990s. Um, she then becomes a judge on the highest criminal court in Texas, and she's ruling on appeals, and she's getting these cases from all over the state, and she's starting to see the racial injustices, the you know shoddy courtroom work by defense lawyers that really kind of cut against the idea that these people had fair trials. And then she's also reading these sort of horrific life stories of people, like we mentioned before. And she um, she sent a 17-year-old to death row, a young man who committed murder at 17. And then she has a 17-year-old herself as she gets a little older and her perspective changes and she starts to feel really uh, uh, bad about the role that she played in the system and she kind of has to reckon with it. And uh, I just heard that story so many times and very, very few people in the present were kind of unapologetically remorseless about having played a role in the system. I just, that trauma played out very differently for different people. The story was never quite the same person to person. But what they all shared was this idea that they look back at their role in the system later and feel in their gut something really bad. And you're right that I kind of discovered this anti-death penalty argument that it's not, you know, I'm not the first person to, to make that, you know, argument, to bring that argument to the fore, there's plenty of defense lawyers and psychologists and therapists who have been connected to this world that were trying to make that argument. And there's also the question of how many people had to suffer in order. I mean, it, it is a terrible calculus, but we make it in we make it in society all the time. Is is one person's relief worth this many people suffering, right? And so, uh, because I, the stories that got to me, of course, again, I'm biased already, but I guess I didn't expect to feel the way that I felt about the tie down team, for instance. Like I knew that was going to be a tough job, but wow. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're hit really hard. And that chaplain who I start the book with, he starts, you know, his work thinking that he's going to be needing to comfort the condemned. But after hundreds of executions, he's actually the therapist, the the counselor to the men on the tie down team who after hundreds of, uh, of executions are having panic attacks and, um, you know, crying and seeing the faces of the people they've helped kill, um, you know, and, and some of them, uh, he, 
you know, deal with that with a certain amount of gallows humor or callousness. And I don't shy away from moments in which the members of the tie down team do exhibit some, some cruelty, but I also came to realize through the book that it almost feels like everybody's cruelty is kind of a product of its, of, of trauma in a way. And sort of, you end up kind of forgiving everybody as you go. And, uh, anytime you hear about doing something, somebody doing something bad, you think, well, what damage produced that, you know, action. Um, and that, that I, I think was something I didn't realize that working on this book would produce in me this sort of, um, like training my brain to see the world in a somewhat more forgiving way. And so I feel like I got that out of the project, you know, and which is a a kind of silver lining for me personally. And I hope readers get sort of some elements of that, um, because there's some value, I think, in, in looking back at this history with that in mind. And I, I guess I do want to dive just a little bit back into this idea that, you know, the the Trump administration went on a killing spree at the very end there. The same administration who also tried to pat itself on the back in a twisted way for, not in a twisted way, but tried to pat itself on the back for the first step back, you know, reinstituted the federal death penalty and just went after people, right? And yet at the same time, you know, people took their law into their old hands as well. I mean, I guess I'm just asking if you see like cruelty, if you, if cruelty in government can, instead of, you know, uh, bypassing people's desire for cruelty and vigilante justice in society actually serves as a, um, inspiration for it. Well, I think the simple way to see that is in the fact that the moments when we were using the death penalty the most were also the times in which Gallup and Pew would put out polls saying that support for the death penalty was at its highest. It was like, the more we use this punishment, the more popular it is, the less we use it, the less popular it is. Um, because, uh, oh, and also the rest less relevant it is, I think is another piece of it. It's not just that the death penalty declined in popularity over the last 20 years. It also isn't something that people really vote based on. Um, though at one time, more of them, I think actually did vote with criminal justice uh, at the top of their minds. I do think that you, there's a backlash effect, but also once the death penalty sort of gets into gear, uh, that's sort of parallels in a way, and you're, you're absolutely right, that sort of parallels the way in which really harsh rhetoric, really punitive, vengeful rhetoric can kind of spark uh, a mass feelings of vengeance and, and hatred um, that kind of get whipped up. And the capital insurrection is, of course, a, a really vivid portrayal of that. Um, but I think what we're now going to see over the next couple of years, I mean, there's a question of how much the Biden administration or Democrats in Congress are going to prioritize the death penalty or criminal justice, broadly speaking. And I will very much be watching for the sort of backlash effects, whether their efforts to undo the death penalty will you know, lead Republicans um, who supported it in the past to kind of come back and really push it, or whether Democrats will... Um, try to build on these concerns about innocence and cost and Christian redemption that have allowed the death penalty to wither in many states, sort of whether they bring that to Congress and try to convince Republicans to go along with them. Um, You know, this is, there's sort of a lot of ways that this could go. So you say that one thing that this book has done for you is you've sort of almost instinctively now look for the cruelty that inspires cruelty. Yes. So when you look at those white supremacists that marched on the Capitol, do you ask yourself about what cruelty they may have suffered? I do. Yeah. Um, 
earlier in the pandemic, Fiona Apple uh, released an album and there's a song where she repeats the line. It's something like evil is a relay sport when the one who's burned turns to pass the torch. I might be um, mangling that, but you know, that I was like that, that rang in my head. And, and then when you have the Capitol insurrection, I mean, I don't, I, I think it's worth noting that for nobody, this is, you know, the first reaction, your first reaction is anger and shock and rage. The, 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 question of what of what trauma is being played out here, what cruelty has been done to these people is a sort of bigger, harder question that you wait until you've calmed down a little bit and you're in the courtroom or the jury room. And, you know, there's, uh, but it has to be asked eventually, right? And um, uh, I think the hardest part for people who get really deep into criminal justice um, reporting and research with an eye towards mercy is these cases like the Capitol insurrection or like, I don't know, um, Innsburg, Dylan Roof more recently, you know, you can train your brain towards mercy, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to have a retribution urge justifiably in many cases. Uh, and that's always going to be your first reaction. And then sort of the question is for all of us, what do we do with that? And what is the second beat of the thoughts? Well, that's always why I've argued against the death penalty <laughs> is I remember this being something that came. It seemed obvious to me, just even as a young person, which would people would ask, well, what if it was your mom? What if it was, you know, your grandmother? Always. It's always a woman, right? That is raped and murdered. What would you do? I'm like, well, I would want to kill that person for sure. Like that's yes. But I'm that's why I'm not in charge. That's why you don't put me on the jury. But you want your system to kind of um, I, I'm thinking of the uh, the phrase people use for the Senate as being the cooling saucer of legislation. And yes, that means uh, a lot of problematic things in the context of congressional gridlock. But you do want your criminal justice system and uh, your public policymaking in general to be a little more considered than your first gut instincts. Right. Um, and uh, and so in all these cases, um, you know, my first reaction might be one thing, but then I'm paying attention to what my second and third and fourth reactions are. Maurice, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Really great to be here. Our recommendation this week for a place to throw your money is the Gulf Region Advocacy Center. It was an easy pick because it's in Maurice's book. As part of his profile of its very colorful founder, Dana Lynn Reeser, Grace, as it's called, focuses on telling the stories of those on death row, the mitigating factors. They also do pro bono direct representation for people facing the death penalty and training sessions for those who want to get involved with mitigation advocacy. You can find out more about Grace and donate to their cause at gracelaw.org. They need volunteers, too, to help keep their services free by helping to maintain the actual center. If you're a plumber or electrician or even a gardener in the Houston area, donating your services is as important as cash. Again, to find out more, that's gracelaw.org. And that is it for the show. We talked to Maurice Shama about his book, let God Sort Them Out, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. It's an engrossing read, and I highly, highly recommend it. Now, we had a long intro and a long interview, so I'll do my best to keep this part short. 
First of all, if you've been enjoying these series, we did Converts and then Good Intentions, let us know and let other people know. The show has been around for six years now, and we could use some new reviews and new ratings. And the show has, for better or worse, I think better, changed a lot. So if you like what it's become, where we are less interested in figuring out conservatives and more interested in figuring out humans, let people know with those ratings and reviews. I also, I don't think have literally ever mentioned that we have merch. We have merch. Our signature t-shirt just says, take care of yourselves, and you should buy it on the crooked.com store. If you take a selfie wearing it or a picture of your child or pet wearing it, it will be retweeted and regrammed and I will be forever in your debt. This show is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Whitney Pastrick is in Austin right now feeding people with World Central Kitchen, but I hope I get to see her too. And remember, now more than ever, take care of yourselves. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.